0: Welcome to School of Movies. The Blade Trilogy.
1: You better wake up. The world you live in is just a sugar-coated topic. There is another world beneath it. The real world. For thousands of years... They have existed among us. You keep your eyes open. They're everywhere. Chances are you've seen them yourself and didn't know it. A secret nation. Our livelihood depends on our ability to blend in. With a lust for power. We should be ruling the humans. These people are our food. They've got their claws into everything. Politics, finance, real estate. There's a war going on out there. He makes the weapons. I use them. Now... One will lead them to conquer mankind. Tonight, the age of man comes to an end. We're gonna be gods. And one will try to stop him dead. There are worse things out tonight than vampires. Like what? Like me. Half human. Blade's mother was attacked by a vampire while she was pregnant. Half immortal. You got the best of both worlds. All our strengths. None of our weaknesses. He is their greatest fear, and our only hope. Soap and all vampires. Wesley Snipes. Steven Dorf. You're one of them, aren't you? No, oh, I'm something else.
0: Blade. With us are Caro Nagisa. Hello. And Debbie Morse. Hello. Of Sequentially Yours. And once again, Lauren Grieve.
2: Hello there.
0: Now, I'm going to open each movie discussion in turn with my personal take. This is part of our Guillermo del Toro season, and honestly, if he hadn't directed the second one, we would have covered these three ages ago, rather than saving them up for something special. If you're listening, Guillermo, please skip this episode, because I'm going to go in with my fangs, and I don't want to come off as disrespectful of the artist I admire most. I am sure Guillermo would say, I have to do my job, so here goes. Because something happened on this viewing session which I did not expect. Del Toro's vision of Blade is potentially far more complex and fascinating than the straightforward world we are handed in the 1998 original. Potentially, not actively. Because in practice, my very favourite director lays out a powerful hand but delivers a prototype for far better films that he would put together later and there elaborate on these complex themes. Because Blade 2 talks big and achieves in mediocre fashion. Blade Trinity is a dismal mess, but Blade 1 is an actual achievement. It was directed by Stephen Norrington, a man who had but a few years left in Hollywood, as the disastrous production of The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen in 2003 brought both his career and Sean Connery's to an end. Stephen Norrington had been working in Hollywood within special effects for years on films like Greystoke and Return to Oz, and he'd only ever gotten to direct two more films around this first Blade film. Death Machine in 1994, which I haven't seen, and The Last Minute in 2001, which I haven't seen. So Blade 1 really stands as the sole repository of what he could accomplish as a director, as opposed to Blade 2, which represents Del Toro nowhere near his best. Blade 1 is delivered with a confident, serious maturity, Question mark. occasionally marred by forced edginess and occasionally scattered with flair and humour. We begin with a teenage boy standing in for us, the audience, just going to a strange club with a hot lady and trying to have some fun before being thrown horribly out of his depth. The vampires at this rave don't have to try to be cool or impress him, they are cool because they dance like no one is watching and they ignore him. This makes a statement about the vampires in the film, who move among us nonchalantly and represent terrifying danger when they choose to reveal themselves. And then the waves of blood part, and Blade makes his entrance, and he looks like the Black Terminator. And as soon as the attacks begin, Snipes moves with surety and precision, again, not trying to be cool, he just is cool. We stay with the human perspective on vampires with Dr. Karen, to whom they represent a lurking threat as she begins to feel out this world. The vampire myth is presented to us in a similar fashion to the following year's The Matrix, just without the philosophy or depth. The world we live in is just a sugar-coated topping. There is another world beneath it, populated by cold mechanical beings who use us as food. Our only defence has a long black coat and wears sunglasses all the time. But Chris Christopherson being earthy and down-home and foul-mouthed and subtly concerned helps. He keeps things from getting too pompous and he puts Blade himself in the position of a samurai serving a master and a son serving a father. Those sunglasses I mentioned may be a hallmark of the original black exploitation derived comic character created by Marv Wolfman and Gene Colan, but in the context of the movie, they cover up Snipes' vulnerable eyes. When he's wearing them, he can be the Terminator, same as when Sarah Connor dressed and acted in that manner to subsume her human side, but when they're off, the real Eric is on show, most notably when Whistler dies. Deacon Frost is a villain of his time, sporting Jin Kazana hair and a fuck-you attitude. He is, again, a bit of a stand-in for a moody teenage boy audience, dissatisfied with the vampire elders personified by actual possible real-life vampire Udo Kier, who plays the mean father. There's something else going on there. It's it seems like Kier really wants Frost to fall into line and respect tradition, and he rises above, violently forcing him to comply, which, of course, Frost has no such compunction with, not only murdering his stand-in father gleefully, but tormenting, torturing, and humiliating him first. This is contrasted with Eric mourning his father figure, also taken by Frost because he decided he doesn't like the way the world works and wants to reshape it, murdering his elders to effectively let the past die. Kill it. It's basically Kylo Ren, but really shallow and nasty, and I love the fact that better films are telling this story now. If you watch the extra on the first Blade disc called La Magra, you'll see the writer of all three of these films and the director of the third, David Goya, talk about the original ending. Now, we're going to talk about Goya a lot tonight, but I'm aware that Del Toro likes him as a friend which is distressing because I have nothing but respect for Del Toro and I have to express how much I dislike Goya's work and how it's so difficult to separate the content of his writing from the mentality of the man himself. This is his worldview, same as Del Toro's personal films reflect his. The original ending of Blade 1 involved the awakening of a blood god who would turn everyone in the world into vampires. Hours before this happens, hours Before this happens, Frost shows Karen four people he has in upside-down Capri Sun pouches in a freezer and tells her that this is what the vampires will eat. Of course, in his own words, this is just a prototype. They'll have to step up production once the blood tide comes.
1: I can keep them alive for years, producing anywhere from 10 to 15 pints of blood a day. Of course, this is just a pilot Once the tide comes, we're going to have to step up production.
0: Obviously, this was half-heartedly resurrected in the third film as Goya scraped the bottom of the barrel, but it was abandoned like all the other plot threads there. This is maybe the worst plan in villain history. First up... Once the blood tide hits this evening, there won't be any humans left to farm. He claims a human body can produce 15 pints of blood a day. Not if it's in a coma, in a pouch, in a freezer. And not if you remove 15 pints a day each time. How are you going to feed 6 billion hungry, new and very confused vampires? How are you going to get the word out? Do you have advertising? Do you have a model for expansion? Can you even afford the facilities, even if you had the time? This seems so needlessly complicated for no long-term gain that they just took this explanatory scene out of the film and hoped people wouldn't ask questions about what the vampires are going to eat. I just went all squeaky there. Are the vampires paying you for the blood you're offering, even if you can somehow pull this off? Is everyone just keeping their old jobs? Are we paying in dollars or favours? Who are your business associates? Donald Logue and that aggressive white-haired girl? Wouldn't it just be better to do this plan of farming humans, but not turn everyone else into vampires? That way, you can just market to the existing minority vampire population! In other words, it's a terrible and poorly considered ending, and it was written and filmed, and Steven Dorff turned into a giant raspberry jelly monster with the CGI blood effects, and Blade smashed his anticoagulant and blew up this tornado of fake-ass blood, and it was boring, and test audiences completely disengaged because they'd spent two hours investing in this vicious, spoiled little bitch of a villain, and then he turned into a screensaver. But the graphics weren't the problem, the dramatic flow was the problem. How could what I just said look good on paper? Because that's what Gaia
3: claims. It looked good on paper. Endings are really important. Um, if you have a great movie and your last 10 minutes aren't so great, I mean, they're, they're really important because it's it's the last impression that people are, you know, that you leave with people. You can have a spectacular movie and uh, fail the audience in the last 10 minutes and completely lose them. On the other hand, you can have a movie that doesn't start out so great and as long as it ends on a strong note, people will forgive quite a bit. Endings... Are very important and i don't know why but but typically they are the most difficult thing to write they're the most difficult thing to film um in quite a few of the films i've been involved in there have been multiple endings uh part of the reason is you never know what you're going to get when you make a movie you never know uh which performances are going to pop things that that work really well on the written page just end up working horribly, you know, on screen and, and, and vice versa. You you have no idea. And so you, you you can think a scene will play, you know, excellently and when it's cut together it's just flat and dead as a dog and conversely you could be really worried about a sequence uh, in script form and then it ends up being brilliant and it turns out not to be a problem at all. And and it's it's always... There's always a sense of discovery when you watch a film for the first time, and, and you never know what you're, you're going to get. I mean, writing a script is not the same thing as making a movie. It, uh, the script is the blueprint, and it's in, it goes through an evolutionary process.
0: So instead of him turning into the blood god, he kind of stayed as Frost, and they had a sword fight, which is more satisfying. But the plot thread is still there. And that doesn't change the fact that Goya considers endings to be really hard. ...that they had to shoot multiple endings of all three Blade films. He says this is because sometimes they just don't work out... ...and you don't know what's going to pop or what idea is going to develop... ...and what actor is going to be good and what actor is going to be bad. But this points to a major flaw in his creative style. He doesn't know what his stories are about. He can't end because his characters are barely growing. If you film multiple endings and most of them are weak... ...it's because you're not telling a story not something personal, not from a place of love or identification. It infuriates me that a percentage of Hollywood screenwriters share this weakness. The first film is solid enough, provided you don't ask questions. The second one has its own flaws that we will talk about soon, though definitely manages sympathetic antagonists and a sense of melancholy not managed outside that movie within this series. And the third film was a desperate scraping together of what they could coax Wesley Snipes into, informed so heavily by real-world professional conflict that the actual story becomes an unimportant footnote. I know that Marvel could make a Blade film of substance, and I fear that when he enters canon, it will be as a 10-episode first season of an underwhelming Netflix show.
4: One thing that I love about Wesley Snipes as Blade is that he knows how to do a superhero pose. Mm -hmm. Like, one of the things that really works, especially in the first movie, is He'll land and he puts his body in a position that looks like it is lifted from a comic book panel. Yeah. And he'll pause for a second and let the camera linger on that just to see the pose. And I think that looks really good. It, gives a, it helps me kind of get more into the film because it's reminding me of Blade.
0: He does that the most in the first film, still quite a lot in the second film, although sometimes he turns into a cartoon. And uh, in the third film, he doesn't give a fuck.
4: No, it, occasionally his body double does it, and Ryan Reynolds <laughs> has to pick up some of the slack. Yeah. <laughs> this was a reinvention of the character in many ways. The classic Blade, and the Blade basically up until this point generally wore a brown jacket, not the long trench coat, and brown or green pants, brown boots, and green sunglasses. Like, going back to the 70s, these like green sunglasses that were mostly translucent, mm-hmm. so you could still see through them as more like goggles than anything. This was probably the best 90s adaptation in the whole Blade movie was updating his look into something a little bit sleeker, more streamlined, a little bit less than what it was in the original (laughs) comics. As much as I hate that this came from David Goyer's absolute despicable hatred of comic books and particularly the kind of silliness that comic books can engage in especially from the silver and and parts of the bronze age i admit that in this case it worked the only thing that kind of bugs me now as a fencer is that his sword doesn't have a guard on it <laughs> and he, he would be sitting he would be losing hands like a jedi <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, it's a, that would bug the hell out of me.
0: The thing that I, that really struck me about the character when I was looking at him this time is that you could cosplay as Blade, but unless you get your hair shaved into the exact haircut, and unless you get the tattoo, at the very least a, a temporary version of that, you're not Blade. There's a a commitment there. It's very striking. That whole thing about the clothes maketh the man, In the, in the case of Blade, it feels like that haircut, that tattoo and the sunglasses make maketh Blade. Like, you could strip off absolutely everything else, and he's still definitely Blade.
5: Yeah, yeah, I can see yeah. that.
0: And they do um, uh, quite economical things with his costume. He only has one costume, really, across all three films, but they vary it. Like, you know, he'll <laughs> take off his trench coat, and then he'll take off the undershirt layer, but just have the vest on, or be wearing that weird little bomber jacket type thing. The coat's thinner and flows better in Blade 2, and it has a red lining to give you a flash of colour. And in Blade Trinity, he's wearing bright red long winter underwear. Gives you kind of variety for different scenes, so he's not just all stalking around wearing the great big thick coat, which can get, like, if you're in a small room, walking around in a coat like that, (laughs) it it feels a bit awkward. Now, the commentary for Blade uh, talks about how much they wanted to make this feel real and almost like it could be taking place in the world right next to you uh, they, um, they, they shoot in, in real streets there are just regular people wandering around there's a lot of daylight scenes and it has the aesthetic of hypermodern business architecture juxtaposed against abandoned industrial sector so when they started with a haematologist, it's almost mundane. Like, she's talking about blood, and they almost wanted to bore the audience, and then Quinn comes back to life and starts biting her uh, ex-partner. And uh, it's suddenly, now you're being thrust into the world of Blade, which just happens to to uh, lie just below the surface of yours. Which might be one of the reasons why this first one feels so steady, because they were... Uh, approaching it from no 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 this is real this is like a, a vampire hunter and this is how he he would act obviously it's extremely stylized in the in the fights but it's not a million miles off the way that and this is quite um, complimentary that Nolan envisioned Batman begins mm.
6: i think you you're right and that also hooks in with making it feel like this generation's dracula or this generation's old vampire mythology because vampirism being treated and addressed in past times as an illness even within the fiction means that the first people who would be exposed to it and would be looking into it would be doctors. So it, it kind of stands to reason that the first person that realises what's going on is is going to be a doctor who can actually look at at the evidence in front of them and, and make it fit in with that world. You know, you've got um, Van Helsing was a doctor. He was looking at vampirism medically um, and... I suppose if you go further back than that, you're then into the era of medicine and uh, spirituality being fairly intrinsically linked.
2: And you want to talk about grounding. I mean, in this world, vampirism is literally a virus. I mean, it's something that can be understood and studied and modified and cured apparently pretty easily. Uh, but then has like a weird other thing because people who are born with it, so which I guess would be vertical infection, uh, is like react differently than horizontal infection, and I don't know. It it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but uh, like at least they're using that as a metaphor to make it more grounded.
6: And that gives them the opportunity to have this um, fantastic class system that enables them to intertwine the. Uh, highfalutin nose-in-the-air vampire masquerade type ancient families that carry on this honourable lineage and also scrappy little got-infected-at-the-back-of-a-club type Mm. um, like Deacon Frost who get to go around shrieking at people because they won't do what he tells them to.
2: And then all of that falls apart in the third movie, which we'll get to, but... (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah,
5: (laughs) I I do want to comment just back on Blade's costume quickly sharon you were saying you know he travels all around the world and you need you know layers you can take off the blade also seems like someone who he doesn't worry about his clothes too much he needs clothes that are very very functional Mm. and this feels like something he as a character would wear Mm -hmm. it feels very practical
6: yeah it's got some wardrobe
5: yes Mm. it's got some armor that coat you know it's presumably leather so it's fairly thick so it could take a sword strike and you might
0: slice through it but it'd be okay and, and it conceals a lot of weapons so it's not just like a cape it has a functionality to it mm, yeah.
6: exactly. The fact exactly. exactly without wearing... having
0: to get a bunch of pouches <laughs> mm.
6: indeed and the fact that he's wearing something that um, at a push will pass for street clothes as long as nobody looks too closely that's how you get away with wearing something that has faintly armor-like qualities but don't get asked questions. Yeah. yeah. Well, especially since most of the time he's going
5: out at night.
0: Yeah. yeah. Uh, they filmed it in California, and I, I was like, I'm sure this is L.A., uh, when they were driving over the bridge and they've got that sort of... the. the the classic suspension type um, uh, arches and I, I double checked it and, and it is California but it's got that cold wintry feel to it so that they're deliberately taking a place that you're normally you'd normally expect to be sort of golden and sun-kissed and making it cold and um, inhospitable to illustrate that you are now in a shadowy version of the world even if it's broad mm. daylight. Mm.
6: Part of that I think and and this is Again, when we move on to the second one, Del Toro talked about this a little bit more explicitly, but they make sunlight feel aggressive Mm. and uh, unpleasant. It's too bright. It's too white. Um, And effectively, even to Blade, sunlight is not a good thing. He may not react to it the same way the other vampires do, Um, but it's, it's not his territory, it's not his hunting ground and so that that daylight becoming this place that you don't want to be almost puts you in the perspective of all the characters in the film I, I, I can't even say Whistler particularly liking going out in the daylight mm. frankly
0: he's probably no longer used to it mm. yeah Also, pretty much any uh, vampire uh, mythos put together after the 80s uh, would have been influenced by the the terror of blood infections and AIDS. The look that apparently they were going for with this first one for the the club vampires and and everyone who wasn't on the high council was heroin chic. They didn't want to make them look sexy. Uh, Although there is definitely, with some of them, more of an an allure and their their levels of objectification in it, which probably wouldn't be in a film like this. I mean, this this film would not... You could make it like this now, but it would feel like a throwback to the 90s.
6: The fact that they open with Tracy Lord, who was known for being a porn Porn star, star. I don't think that's an accident. Mm. It's meant to feel like that.
0: Mm. But there's a sense of danger to it, and uh, the the club scene is actually a genuinely great piece of filmmaking. (laughs) It has a tempo to it. It rises up. And, you know, a lot is conveyed visually while the music is sort of pumping along. And you get introduced to Deacon Frost inadvertently as, as he's going by. And then when it just... It, it starts to, like, shower down on, on him and this poor kid. In, in reality, it feels like the vampires would have torn him to shreds rather than just kicking him a lot. But um, <laughs> th- th- then just, like, having him... Like, you're like, oh, this guy's dead. And then... When Blade actually turns up and is actually, you know, the, the the fighting movie thing happens, it's there's a sort of already kind of a, a danger behind it and a sense of sort of gathering momentum and, and adrenaline. So you've got a great build up before the release.
6: What you um, mentioned there about the the sort of the tail end of the the AIDS scare inverted commas and the the parallels. Did I say that... scare? No, you didn't. But I'm okay. just say so it's not it went on
0: for so long. everybody was really terrified scare, of it but yeah
6: that's what i mean but the that again ties in with this idea of having this two-level class of vampire because mm. there was that horrible tone of there's people who've got hiv through no fault of their own because they picked it up through a blood transfusion or whatever Good and AIDS then versus bad here's AIDS. the yeah exactly here's the people and it's a lifestyle thing and and that's your scapegoats and that's where you point the hate
2: Well, that's the reason why I used uh, vertical and horizontal transmission, because that's verbiage from HIV infection.
6: Wow.
2: Um, Ah. Yeah, so this nightclub scene, uh, I haven't watched Blade in a long time, and watching this nightclub scene was very nostalgic, because this movie came out at a very formative age for me, Mm -hmm. and when we're talking about the film's aesthetic, I feel like so much of my, like, group of friends in high school's aesthetic was somehow tied to this and some other similar films, to the point where we had watch parties and, uh, like, we learned all about the different clans of vampire that they had planned, and my one friend actually would, like, draw one of the sigils on his arm all the time so, like, we watched this movie a lot growing up and that (laughs) nightclub (laughs) is still so good Mm. it feels like a scene from a Vampire the Masquerade game that I would run, Mm. and that that. I just, I just think that's really cool. This movie, to a different extent from 2 and 3, actually feels like it would be at home in a Vampire the Masquerade game without being cliche. The Blade 2, I think, is kind of subverting enough of it that it would feel like really novel in that universe, and Blade Trinity feels like it's stealing too much and using too many stereotypes to be interesting in that universe, because yeah i mean we could talk about how pretty much every plot point is taken from a book somewhere but um yeah it's just as i was watching this again i just couldn't help but think like oh my goodness uh this this is this film is my youth this this music i have heard this music so many times Hmm. but you did mention the fighting and i want to talk about that so bad yeah go for it so um and and, uh, this film has really long takes on the the fight so you can really see the choreography and I just I can't say how much I appreciate that because that's so not a modern way of shooting Mm. most modern action films are like very quick cuts very close in like shaky cam stuff which is what makes something like i don't know winter soldier feel so novel because they let the choreography play we have like where the camera's further away from the actors the scene goes on for longer and it's fascinating to me as the movies go on you go from this earlier more traditional way of shooting action to a much more modern way of shooting action and it's like the every movie the camera gets closer and every movie the shots get shorter and it shows so much
6: i think they were trying Del Toro was trying to keep the um the fight scenes as long as he could for the second one obviously Mm -hmm. we'll talk more about that later um but um did, does anybody know if Snipes had a fight coordinator credit for the first one? I know he did for the second.
0: He did for the first one. He was also his own stuntman for all but five or six shots in in, in the first one. There was very few times when Snipes wasn't on screen when it was supposed to be Blade, and obviously they switched him out for a digital double a lot in the second one. Donnie Yen did some of the fight choreography in that as well. Mm, yeah. And I think E.L. James was the fight coordinator of the third one. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I was going to say I I thought just like Adobe After Effects was
0: like
6: (laughs) but that that does sort of give a sense of there being a real investment in the in the fights and them being when when you have an action movie of this nature where so I don't want to say so little of it is script but the dialogue Thank you Guy <laughs> the dialogue even in the first one is not exactly florid it
1: smells like a vampire <laughs> wiped his ass on it
6: you know it's it, it's it's short it's abrupt it's rough cut phrases especially when um Blade himself is is doing the conversing he's not a talker no nah. he's not chatty <laughs> it, it's that's There's one of the reasons why about the only thing that I like about Trinity is the uh, the way he and um Reynolds play off each other because they are so different Mm -hmm. in terms of how they express themselves. Um, You like
0: that? (laughs) Just made me feel really awkward like I got two uncles in the room that hate each other.
6: Uh, well, I'm talking about the conflicting styles, not necessarily the underlying tension. So, yeah, um, but uh, but yeah, the the lack of lengthy explanatory dialogue to bring out the characters—it's all got to come out in the in the action. It's all got to come out in the fights. And I think in the first one, they they sell you Blade as a character so much through how he expresses himself in battle.
0: And For all the concessions to, uh, well, we're going to try and make this the real world, there's a bit about when when Act 2 starts up, that they just go off the rails and go, let's just have a bunch of seemingly random crazy shit for no reason. First off, there's the Benny Hill car chase. It's not really a chase, he's just driving through the street, and I stuck yakety-sacks on. It's perfect. It's exactly the right stupid sped-up speed. That's not exciting. It's silly. You must know this. You can't run things at that speed and have it not be silly.
6: Especially when, I mean, it's fine. I mean, it's not fine, but it's fine if you're doing it Nothing's as like ever a, fine. a long shot of just the car and you can't really see anything else around it. But no. when you're also using sped up footage inside the car so you can see the actor reaching for something in the passenger seat at high speed.
0: It's like, I've got to get looking, my word as originals.
6: Looking over at, at, yeah. at um, you know, passers by on the street and that you, you've got. Um, Like hookers in... Leopard skin coats and high heels tottering up and down at Benny Hill's speed.
0: Yeah. it's a it's a very '60s editing technique. They discovered it in the '60s and they overused it. <laughs> uh, they did it mostly in their comedies, but sometimes it, it, it
6: turns up in James. When Bond. it turns
0: up in in dramas, like James, the, the whole end sequence uh, on the boat in Thunderball is at that speed. And again, I stuck that to Yakety Sax. Put it on YouTube. See so if you, like oh. find Benny Hill and James Bond. Ha- oh wait, it's James Bond meets Benny Hill. For a fight, and uh, <laughs> it's it's not a technique to be used. But immediately after that, you've got the weird like Japanese schoolgirl J-pop song, which is so screechy and like, okay, so what are you doing here? And immediately after that, we get the pearl scene, and I'll talk about pearl when we get to Blade Trinity. But the. Yeah, the, the Pearl scene, and then the, the the vampire Bible where Blade has a fight, and basically the Dead Sea Scroll storage room with a little girl. And it's like, what is even happening at this point?
4: We, we have left reality way behind yeah. now.
0: So for all the work they do when they're like, this is a real world, there's another one beneath it, and it's bad shit crazy.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, one of the things that kept taking me out of it is so many of their sound effects are like really stuck. Like, they literally used the door-opening sound effect from the original Doom. <laughs> yeah,
6: Does the Will Helm that... turn up anywhere?
2: No, surprisingly. That's, like, the one piece of restraint the SFX guy must have had. It's so bad. Like, every time I'd hear that sound effect, I'm like, that's not from this movie hmm. or piece of media or franchise, and it just it bothered me. I mean, all of my notes stop after... The nightclub scene. (laughs) Like I love the rest of the film, but I had nothing to say about it because it's kind of like okay, fighting happens. It's pretty good. I feel like this doctor character is like a good self or like um audience insert character, but is a little too like flippant with her
0: miracle HIV cure. And she's very serious as well.
2: Yeah. And and then the CGI is so bad. Oh
0: man, the the blood Ugh. floaty CGI is like world's worst. It's not millennial rubber. We'll get to that in a second. But oh, it's that- really bad. It's like you could maybe do a special edition where you paste over this pretend blood with with better effects because it needs it. My god.
2: Yeah but i did really like i really appreciated the inclusion of um like a science-based weakness for the vampires Mm -hmm. the the ethylene diamine tetracytic acid like that's so cool to me as an organic chemistry and pharmacy person like i was so excited by that concept where essentially like you know oh yeah vampires are weak to silver and garlic and you know sunlight and all this kind of stuff and then this doctor's like you know what I got a theory here's some science bitches (laughs) (laughs) I love that
0: Speaking of weaknesses, there's the sunblock trick. Oh. That turned oh up. Did, was that in Buffy? Or did he just stand under an right. um, umbrella no, no, no. all the, the time, the, Spike? The,
6: the trick that they have extricated from Buffy is the vampires are as resistant to sunlight as we need them to be for this scene to work. Really? <laughs> okay. yeah.
0: Because it feels like there's quite a bit of, of Buffy in Blade in the sort of like the whole. When you stake them through the heart, they disintegrate so that you don't have to worry about their corpses and you can yeah. just move on. And Hopefully that was no. fun. <laughs> Um but the sunblock trick when they when they bring out poor Udo Kier to the cliffs and they're like they smear it on each other lightly and then they get up and then they're gloating and blah 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 did you put sunblock on your fucking eyeballs did you put it on the lining of your mouth cuz Ron Perlman puts his hand under a dash of sunlight in Blade uh, Blade 2 and it burns him through the fucking leather and,
2: Well the also, the what? scene the scene on that cliff, they wear like biker leathers mm-hmm. with helmets, mm-hmm. Yeah. and then it's like, okay, so we have established in this world that biker leathers will protect you from UV rays. Oh nope, but not for Ron Perlman. Not your Ron Perlman. Yeah. Yep. Ron Perlman's wearing that special
4: those special leathers that allow UV to get through. You know, so he mm. can tan his hands.
0: <laughs> I mean, this is just us being picky. As far as I'm concerned, like just looking at that one scene on its own and saying. They put sunblock on, therefore they're able to not cook when the sun is almost rising they'd be in agony and burning same as Udo Kier
6: but this is the thing it's it's not that we're being picky They're, the inconsistency is fundamental to things that happen in the film they have to put on sunblock under these um, UV shaded um, visors and black helmets and leathers and I, I buy that okay so the sunblock is kind of a last line of defence if anything gets through the um, the, the sun visor that's fine but then frost goes out just in the sunblock and because it's a cloudy day and he makes sure he's standing under a tree you
4: know
6: i mean i well he
4: took the uh he took the injectable
6: sunblock. Oh, of yeah. <laughs> it's a suppository. This is the thing. I went to Florida. I was using, like, Factor 50, and I still burned. Now, to my knowledge, I'm not a vampire.
0: You burned in the shade at night inside.
6: Exactly. <laughs> I, I do not tan well, to be fair. But this, this, is time... like, this happens for me, but...
2: But this does highlight kind of the big problem, because in the first film, it's very internally consistent, which is one of the, yeah. the strengths of the film in general. <laughs> Mostly. Well, no, I mean, like, at least at a surface level kind yeah. of, of thing, where it's like, okay, the vampires, maybe the vampires made special sunblock. Yeah. I mean, who knows, whatever. That we goes established on the eyeballs, this. come on. <laughs> It's a, it's a special spray. They wear fancy contacts. I don't know. They're vampires. So, yeah, But like okay. the first film is establishing that the vampires have ways of dealing with sunlight. Mm-hmm. And those ways are some kind of weird chemical sunblock that we never see again.
6: Mm-hmm. And wearing <laughs>
2: lots and lots of clothing, which we see in the next film, is exactly not helpful. <laughs> and then in the third film, the entire focus of the bad guy's plot is to make it so they can go out in the sunlight. It's like, you you done that. You've done that two films again. You ago.
6: had sunblock. What happened to the sunblock?
2: <laughs> wait, wait, wait. I, I've solved sold it. I've solved it.
4: Czech sunlight is just more is just stronger than Californian sunlight. Oh,
6: <laughs> that's so that's totally the that's, opposite it's, it's, of true. When
4: you're in the Czech Republic, it's just stronger sunlight.
6: <laughs> no, no, no! I know what it is. The sunblock they had, they left at the back of the bathroom cabinet too long, and it went out of date, so it doesn't work. I yeah. haven't got anymore.
0: But that's that's not the plan for this first one. The the plan for this first one, I've already talked about it to death. But really, if you think about it, because Frost's just going to turn everyone into vampires, all he's actually doing is destroying all the food in the world. He's making it useless. Because everyone's still going to be hungry. He's just weeing on all the hot dogs.
6: You don't piss on hospitality. If If you had a plan to turn all the cows, chickens and pigs in the world into people... with everyone like the other humans would be going to that is a bad idea <laughs>
2: well, well this is I mean, a
0: stupid plan <laughs> <laughs>
2: but if we did that Sharon then the C in KFC would stand for cannibalism
6: true yeah. but I, oh, but I mean
0: here's what actually happened David Goyer came up with the idea for the blood god then David Goyer asked himself yeah but what are they going to eat then David Goyer answered that question but the answer wasn't satisfactory so David Goya took the answer out and hoped people wouldn't ask the same question he had. The problem is, the answer to that question was a better plan than the original plan. Just make the human Capri sons and sell them to vampires is better than turn all the humans into vampires. It's just not some great big one thing that's going to happen at midnight which Blade has to stop like it's made clear at the beginning that Deacon Frost has no respect for the Vampire High Council and like they don't like him he doesn't like them and he's just like he's this he's not exactly a whining teenager but he's kind of like a cool together teenager who's got this big plan he just gets really cross and petulant when anything gets in his way which kind of spoils his cool it's not the opposite of what the high council are doing it's so fucking crazy it doesn't make any sense and it requires Blade's juice. How? Did they build that thing expecting there to be a Daywalker? Special blood. And this, like, We Hate Movies pointed this one out. In Blade Trinity, Somerset's plan with the, oh, you've got to get this serum, Dracula's blood is the key. Like, you've got to get this, like, thing working. Dracula was only thawed out, like, two days beforehand. They'd had this plan for ages. Did they just expect to find Dracula someday? And how did they know about his blood? They haven't been able to study it. Well, you see, Alex,
6: <laughs> you have to kill the uh, head vampire. It's the
0: same thing over and over <laughs> again. It's l- lazy comic book movie writing, and it depends on a man's juice. Every Wolverine-related yeah. wa- l- <laughs> movie...
6: That is more true than you know.
0: Yes, yes, it is. Every Wolverine movie, every blade movie is somehow requires juice from the hero. We want the juice, man, your delicious juice. That's the key. The key to everything. You got such special blood. All the the amazing Spider-Mans, they, they needed his special blood for that. And the, I, the green goblin is amazing too. He's like, you gotta give me your juice, Peter. I need your juice! And Peter's like, do you even, like, how do you know my blood will actually help? And then, like, even, like, Star Trek 12, they're like, we got to get Khan's juice, man. <laughs> <laughs> He's got this special, special juice. I am so sick to death of special blood, I could puke. Oh, my God.
6: Yeah. <laughs> oh, right, okay, okay. When we're composing this whole rule book for unpicking toxic masculinity... Mm-hmm. One of the top ten has to be stop thinking your juice is going to mm. save the world.
0: <laughs> Ooh. Yes. there there is a, a neat point at the end after Whistler dies, which is maybe one of the maybe the best scene in this in terms of drama. But when uh, when he finds Whistler and doesn't even look at him and just takes the sheet off very very slowly. That, that's a, a nice bit of acting from uh, Snipes, and he play he under underplays it and uh, doesn't go no like that. He's just very calm and yeah. uh, uh, like this first one. He has a good sense
4: of yeah. how much emotion Blade should have. Yeah, because I never feel that Blade is an emotionless robot. Mm. I feel like he has a personality, but it's not an over-the-top personality or even a on-top personality it's a slightly under the top personality Mm. but It's, it's there
6: it's it's the kind of personality that seems to me to be um like movie style consistent with someone who has had to shift from one cultural base to another and not be able to re-establish his sense of security. Therefore, all of his connections and and reliance has to be on himself because he is the only thing he can depend on still being there. Mm.
0: I wouldn't attach too much uh, credit to uh, Snipes being able to modulate his uh, Blade performance. He said in the commentary for the second one that uh, Blade had a sense of humor now uh, because he'd drunk blood.
6: Uh, All right then, what?
0: <laughs> he said. Oh, well, you okay. know, I fought a blood god, so you know, I guess Blade can tell jokes now. That's what he said in the commentary. So there you go. That's the amount. Okay, of so that went into it. okay,
6: so for thank, the thank you, Noring, Kevin Del Toro. I yeah. drank pineapple juice. So I can now dress like Carmen Miranda. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a Blade sequel we never got. Mm-hmm. The, okay, but after the the, the Whistler's death scene, um, the there's a, a scene where he um, kind of prepares himself and prays and meditates and then he pulls up his Japanese peace lily and cuts off the roots it, it's it's on the nose but it's, it's uh, Goya very deliberately wrote that um, he has uh, not directly killed but he has allowed his teacher, his Buddha, his mentor and his effective father figure to kill himself so he's killed his teacher Uh, he then kills his mother he then kills his father and then cutting off those roots beforehand is preparation for being able to self-actualize and he didn't use the word self-actualize but he just meant as in to know you know to be able to define himself from a point after this without having this baggage from the past.
6: I think self actualize is probably in that portion of the vocabulary that Goya doesn't have.
0: Yeah, uh, my my theory is um because again on the uh, commentary for uh, Blade 2 uh with Snipes he said um there were some some studio heads were a little bit uh Reticent uh, to uh, hire Del Toro and Snipes cut in with, well, what does reticent mean to everyone else who doesn't know? And uh, he said, well, sorry, I was being politically correct. That's not what that means. What you meant, David, was discreet, diplomatic. Please stop misusing the term politically correct. It's already been abused to the point of defaming anybody who asks for some consideration for your fellow man. The third act goes on a bit. Like, after Whistler's died, it's 40 minutes of a very elaborate sequence. Oh, we haven't talked about Donald Logue. He's fun, isn't he? Yes,
4: I like like Donald Logue in basically everything he does, particularly when he's the most entertaining part of a stupid superhero movie. (laughs)
0: I'm going to be a naughty god. Yeah. Yeah.
4: <laughs> yeah. Between the, between this and Ghost Rider, he is basically the best part of two stupid superhero movies and I'm okay with that. He's entertaining. He hmm. may, he makes me happy hmm. uh just to see him on screen um and to get him to see him get
0: hurt several times. Although his improvisational style doesn't necessarily work with the rest of the clipped humor in the film, um it's still some of the funniest bits. Possibly because it doesn't work the same as uh, yeah. Reynolds is in the third one.
4: Yeah, it's 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 not that his style doesn't work with the rest of the film, so the rest of the film's humor doesn't work. <laughs> and his style does. So So they don't mesh very well.
6: Yeah.
4: No, they don't mesh very well. Um also I just want to say that I think Udo Kier was phenomenal. Oh yeah. Before this movie came out, Udo Kier was who I thought of as Deacon Frost because mm-hmm. the Deacon, the comic Deacon Frost is an older German dude. Um he was in fact the one who made Blade but strangely enough, in the comics, I'll accept that, whereas in this movie, it seems forced and stupid mm-hmm. because Steven Dorff seems like a child, especially compared to Blade. And yes, I know, Vampire, etc., but it's still ridiculous. And I hated that reveal in the film, whereas, and I know it's comic accurate, but in the comic, it just didn't come off as dumb. Mm-hmm. And if it were Udo Kier, I would be like, oh yeah, I buy that. Also, plus it's good to see Udo here actually playing a vampire again. I always love it. He plays one of my favorite Draculas. Mm. <laughs> That's the
0: 1974 Blood for Dracula.
4: He was great
0: in that. I loved watching that. He's classy, and as soon as he's removed from the film, it gets less classy as a result. Pretty but, much, yeah. yeah. But um, the actual, the, the final, uh, like, the like from when like uh, the the bit with his mother is genuinely unnerving and a little bit uncomfortable and like difficult to watch repeatedly because you're like well, where are they going with this and then he just stabs her through the stomach and then does the superhero landing but that that f- like frost that fight with those guys is one of the best most energetic like everyone goes yeah 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 in the background waiting their turn <laughs> <laughs> Uh, like it's it's a it's a standard uh, movie. trope. I think uh, Del Toro even admitted that is a standard movie trope that uh, Roger Ebert has acknowledged, and like uh, you know, he he didn't want to violate that when he did his that exact same fight in Blade Two. But uh, yeah. yeah, that that followed by the actual sword fight with Frost. Some motherfuckers are always trying to ice skate uphill. That killing Frost in a very embarrassing way, which incorporates a Daffy Duck turn to the camera in a kind of a wah wah is deeply satisfying.
4: Yes. Yes. Oh, very much
0: so. And, and way better than the original La Magra idea, which is where he sort of like half fights him for a bit and then turns into jelly. Uh, also, extra kudos for the, the Russian epilogue bit. The whole, you know, cat, did I catch you at a bad time? Dovrish. Uh, and the sort of the, the building up to something and then credits. That's a great ending. That leaves you, leaving the cinema feeling fantastic. That was originally supposed to be Whistler. And that would have left everyone in the cinema going, oh, now he has to kill his mentor again. That's not good. So yeah. much better that it was just like some scumbag Russian vampire.
2: Well, but it, it, it actually complements the cold open. So it's almost like we join Blade in progress and we see the end of the previous adventure with the nightclub and we see the beginning of the next adventure in Russia.
0: Yeah. So Blade 2... a world beyond the one we
1: know, where the powers of darkness fear nothing but one man. Blade. We represent the ruling body of the vampire nation. They're offering you a truce. They want to meet with you. You sure about this? They'll take us in
0: deeper than we've ever been.
1: Now, those he has sworn to kill need his help to fight a new breed of terror. They're no longer top of the food chain.
6: Our forces are ready to fight, but we need a leader.
1: Um, let me get this right. You want me to hunt them? For you? Ooh, so exciting. Five, four, three, two. One. Keep your friends close. Keep your enemies closer. Call it all Wesley snipes do not know who you are. Messing with
0: Blade Two. Call it all Now, where this film succeeds is in injecting Del Toro's style into the Blade universe. It is unmistakably a GDT joint with impressive sets, the monster being human, the human being a monster, and a sense of loss at the end. Where this film falls down is that it only lightly injects Del Toro's substance. It's all eye candy and minimal brain protein. Now, the way he talks on the commentary, the aim was just to make a fun action horror movie, and he had a great time shooting it, and the ideal way to watch is to just switch your brain off, don't ask questions, and enjoy it. But that is antithetical to our show and the way I operate. Modern filmmaking has advanced beyond that to the point where we can get massive, deep, intertextual discussions out of thor ragnarok and black panther so when people complain about superhero fatigue think of how the bar has been raised on our popcorn features that leaves blade two with a few quite fascinating details like the biological examination of the reaper's body and painting the vampires in a little more shades of gray than they were before but in general it's a goofy beat-em-up and it's way below gdt's pay grade We are right to expect more of him, and if he made it today, I know we would get more. But he made it back then, and as such, it became a vital stepping stone in his career. So, the Dark Prince murdering his father and being sympathetic would be revisited in Hellboy 2, a role reprised and far exceeded by Luke Goss. In fact, this whole film plays out like a prototype for both Hellboys. GDT took this job precisely because Goya told him no studio was going to let him do Hellboy after Mimic without a successful action sci-fi under his belt. And at $155 million, this was the most successful of the Blade trilogy, most likely because the original was also being discovered on the new format of DVD, bringing in new audiences for the sequel, many of them who were too young several years beforehand when Blade 1 came out. The concept was simple enough in the planning stages. If vampires are scary to humans, what's scary to vampires? The problem with introducing the Reaper strain was that the vampires we then fall in with are a shower of bastards arrogant, pompous, big-talking, unpleasant to be around, black-clad Matrix goths all strutting around the place. It was supposed to be a dirty dozen, but just like Rogue One, which Donnie Yen was also in, when you have that many dirty characters in a shortish film and you aren't interested in deepening any of them, then what you have is the 12 assholes. A bunch of smug turds we are willing to die in grisly ways, so that we can focus in on what's important. We often don't know that we're wishing that, but we are. The blood pack gets in the way of the story, and they consume so much of it. GDT admitted in one of the commentaries that there was no detail in the characters on paper in the script he was handed by Goya, so he had to work hard to give them the tiniest amount of dimensionality. And by that I mean establishing which of them were even friends. Goya doesn't write characters, he writes scenarios. Imagine if there were secret vampires. Imagine if Satan had a child with a woman. Imagine if Superman was grumpy and resentful. The characters are in service to the story, rather than the other way around. And that, conversely, often makes the story itself difficult to engage with. Even when you have a great story. So when you have a thin, weak one... Where those people featured aren't real in the mind of the writer, there's nothing for me to get my teeth into. Here are the interesting characters. Nyssa, Nomak, Damaskinos, and potentially Blade. Everyone else is wasting our time. Lighthammer, Red Hair, Irish, that one lawyer guy, the chap who told Chris Christopherson he was one cunt hair away from hillbilly heaven, Chris Christopherson, Dickbag Hellboy, Daryl, Donnie Yen, And the cat. Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna eat you little fishies. None of these people advance the plot. They are a waste of story. When they get to the rave, all of the vampires in there with their bloody mutilation and blades standing among them too badass to dance, all of them, especially the blood pack, are trying to be cool. And thus, they are not cool. Because they make you feel cool. Hey, I met you. You are not cool.
1: I'm glad you were home. I'm always home. I'm uncool.
0: I know Del Toro. He's a colossal geek, and that's more than cool enough in its own context. And in this case, deliberately subverting the too-cool-for-school tropes kind of came around and bit the film in the ass. Lighthammer hiding his bite and turning at an inopportune moment is the staple of zombie and vampire cinema, and it makes us think he's an idiot for saying nothing, and that redhead is a fool for not noticing. Reinhardt? daryl and damaskinos all just smugly waiting to reveal how they tripped and trapped blade and they were evil all along and the guy in the chainmail t-shirt just seems to want to kill chris christopherson Donnie yen is fine but doesn't do or say anything and goes out like that we don't even see donny yen die Lighthammer hammer just sort of sneaks up behind him and goes Ugh. and then it's like who could possibly kill Donnie yen probably light hammer i don't know it happened in the dark And the cat is just dead meat who serves no purpose after the initial message delivery. So that's the blood pack. A bunch of traitors, idiots, posers, saps and douchebags. What a crushing waste of del Toro's strengths. Here's the story that could have been told. Blade is recruited by Nessa to investigate the Reaper strain, which is preying on vampires. She puts a bomb in his head to get him out the door, Snake Plissken style, so there's already tension between them. Nyssa doesn't see humans in the same contemptuous way as many of the vampires we've already met. She admires aspects of their culture and art and science and is fascinated by the shared history converging with vampires. Since she's a pureblood we get to see humans from the outside, from someone who is never among their number, and you can get quite a good allegory there for the super wealthy. What she seeks is a way for the two species to not necessarily coexist, but for her people to stop preying on the weak and vulnerable. They have to evolve culturally beyond being simply wolves suits while still remaining in the shadows at least for now. Nyssa has two well-developed companions a mean but funny Ron Perlman who by the way isn't a white supremacist like the character of Reinhardt is in Blade 2. That thing he asks Wesley Snipes, can you blush? Wesley actually got asked that before at some point by a racist. And Nyssa's second companion is a wise ...and thoughtful Donnie Yen. They dig deeper, fight a bunch of Reapers... ...and discover her brother is patient zero... ...and that their father made him that way. Same as in the actual film... ...only we get all of that done a lot earlier. Blade and Donnie Yen get into a dazzling... ...coordinated sewer fight... ...with two dozen Reapers... ...culminating in Yen deliberately letting the sun in... ...to clear the nest while he is bitten... ...which destroys him but leaves Blade alive... Nomak kills the stubborn, unwavering, traditionalist Reinhardt, who is protecting Nyssa and her father. Blade, who was grudgingly beginning to enjoy all of their company, reflects on his years of hunting down and executing vampires. Talking to these guys, he has come to realise, with Whistler being dead and gone, that maybe his mentor's hatred of them was powering him along and that maybe they're not all smug, evil predators without any humanity. Vampires murdered Whistler's family. Of course he would loathe them with a bitter fire and want to destroy them all to prevent that tragedy occurring to other people. He taught Blade to hate that part of himself, to seek out others of his kind and slaughter them. The notion of a family unit of vampires being torn apart by Blade's retaliation speaks of a circle of hate but only if you make the vampires more than just cackling villains, which this does, hence the dissonance. I mean, that's on display in this film, so it just needed better shaping. The concept of questioning your previously rigidly held beliefs on show in the first story, and by extension questioning a venerated teacher, is rich and tasty storytelling, and perfect for an audience a little older and hopefully a little smarter. Nomak wants to hunt down and infect the whole vampire population with the Reaper strain, seeing their dynasty as decadent and corrupt and wanting to reduce the vampires to this feral state so that the battlegrounds between them and humans would be clearer, more black and white, simplified. He is mad, but there is a strange sense of balance to his aims, a need to make sense of the world. That, to him, has been nothing but cruel and twisted. He was created in an attempt to make vampires less vulnerable, but what he represents is an experiment gone wrong. A son cast out. Damaskinos deserves to die for his meddling, and he knows it. By the end, Nomak kills his father, seeking the database of every vampire in the world because that's what the king was guarding. There's no interest in Blade's special blood because they've done that already in the first film. Blade fights and kills Nomak to both save the humans from the Reaper strain, and save the vampires. Nyssa strikes the killing blow, survives, and takes over Damaskinos' company, destroying the database. Blade is left with an uncertain outlook on life, still intent on taking out the worst vampires, but questioning his former crusade, which he has to admit was genocide. Same as the two major villains he has just faced over the past two movies. And maybe end there. No need for a third, because with so little accomplished in Blade 2, there was no need for a second. The series peaked in that final battle in the first film, where Blade expertly took out a bunch of goons with incredibly energetic and well-coordinated precision, then bested Frost and gave us that invigorating Russian epilogue. And since this isn't going to be a series about warring philosophies, it becomes a series about action sequences. And if that's already peaked in 98, then aside from money, what was the point of carrying on? There was no point, but money. Once again, David Goya didn't have a story to tell. The high points of this story are all Del Toro's doing, manifestly, and despite being underwhelmed by this underachieving film, I thank Cthulhu for its existence because Kronos, Mimic, and this all had to happen in exactly that way to bring us The Devil's Backbone, Hellboy 1, Hellboy 2, Pan's Labyrinth, Pacific Rim, Crimson Peak, and The Shape of Water, all coming in the next few months. (laughs) <laughs> all, so let's focus on the finer details and discuss our favorite aspects of the film now that i've dragged it through the blood
4: one thing that i think is kind of cool is that um, the reaper design with the stinger in the mouth mm-hmm. that comes from polish vampire folklore mm-hmm. That's the, what a Polish vampire has is that mouth stinger idea as opposed to the sort of Balkans, Romanian type ones that we normally see. Mm. Which I thought was a cool idea, just to have, you know, take another type of vampire and throw it into the film.
5: Which, if you've ever watched um, the later Del Toro show, The Strain, he also brings that idea even further. And he even calls them strigoi, which I believe is from the Polish word
4: for vampire.
6: Yeah. Awesome. The, the stinger on the tongue, if you think about it, does actually make a little bit more sense than the teeth thing? Yeah. Yeah.
4: Oh, agreed. Very much so.
6: Yeah, that feels like an yeah. animal predator, something that a, a
4: species would have evolved over time. Yeah. Yeah. And also, in the, the church sequence, one of the stained-glass windows was the Eye of Agamotto. I liked that.
0: Oh, that just makes me sad, because I want a Del Toro-directed Doctor Strange, but I don't feel like he's going to ever play Marvel's game.
4: Probably not, no, and that's a shame. Um, although, I, I'm happy with Scott Derrickson to keep doing it. He's, he did a wonderful job on the first one, so...
2: So, some of the things that I really liked in this film is some of the real subtle world-building that GDT did. Like, the blood cocaine at the beginning was kind of, like, a cool thing where it's like, oh, well, vampires, you know, they try to have fun in different ways, and, like, they are alive for so long, like, normal things that humans do need to be, like, changed in a certain way, which is also exemplified in the, what is it, the House of Pain, where it's, like... Um, It's like a BDSM club, but it's kind of like a nightclub where the vampires are actively performing sadism and masochism in, like, really extreme ways just because they're vampires. They can take it, and it's kind of fun. It's like... Halfway between like human nightclub and Hellraiser in a weird way. And yeah, I, was I quite really a bit loved of
6: Hellraiser, that. But I kept getting that <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah, but but I love that concept of taking like, okay, this is a modern kind of monster. Let's see how that how like a modern experience for humans would translate with this kind of physiology and this kind of like experience. I, I just really like that kind of more subtle world building. I, I really like that they brought back the EDTA. Because it like he used it for one scene, but it's there just to show you that like oh these reapers are actually like worse than what Frost turns into at the end of the first film. So it's like a, a, a slightly subtle way of uh, anybody who saw the first film showing that like this is big news, that this is like a big deal, that this is like an escalation. Granted, we didn't need Norman Reedus to explain it for 20 minutes, but...
6: Um, <laughs> but hey, you got Norman Reedus, you gotta get him to do something.
2: Because all they all they had to do was he'd be like, you know, hey, I got these new things, all this stuff, I got this EDTA, and then Blade goes, I know all about EDTA, and then just, like, walks away with
6: it. And, like, that's it. That, that, that That's all that scene needed to be, but... I know what Blade yeah. does. Yoink. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, I do, I get what you mean about the world building, um, Lauren. I think what, in a way, some of that made me a little bit frustrated. Um, and I, I have to admit, one of the little things I thought was quite neat was um, Damaskino's eating the blood jelly. Because it's like, yeah. he's really old and his teeth can't <laughs> stand up to actually biting anything <laughs> anymore. So they have to give him yeah. this like, like old people <laughs> blood. Yeah. I just want to
4: know how he's eating it with a fork.
6: Mm, good question. <laughs> Um, but it, no, it made me think of that. There's there's something that they put in tea for um, for people in in care homes who've got to the point where they can't really swallow very well anymore, and it, it thickens it up and makes it like jelly, and it seemed like that oh. was what he was eating. Yeah. Um, oh,
2: they put that in water too. It's the most disgusting thing. Mm.
6: Um, but the all of those little details in a normal Del Toro film where you had the, the depth of character that he is normally his, his stock in trade, hmm. all of those little details would then build up the world behind the characters. The reason why it frustrated me a little bit in this one is because there are no characters to build it up behind. So they kind of...
0: Or they is. aren't. that There are characters that could be developed, mm. but they but they're don't. they're not being, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, a lot the of this... Was, he was hampered becoming by. more
4: interesting than the people in the setting.
0: Yeah. I mean, he was hampered by the fact that he was handed Goya's script and pretty much had to stick to it. He, like, when there were, if you listen to his commentaries, he's like, that was my line, I did that line, I learned, added that one there. But, like, he can pick them out after about 25 minutes. There's a little bit of Del Toro being able to add something to the script. That doesn't speak well of creative freedom in terms of actually being able to develop these characters. But it
6: it kind of made me feel a little bit frustrated on his behalf because it's like he went into this expecting to do it the way he makes movies, which is to put all of these subtle little details in to put the world behind the backdrop of the characters that he's then going to evolve um, and then couldn't.
0: Well, by all accounts, whenever he talks about it, he says it was, at the time, like one of the most fun movies he's ever worked on. So, you know... He he he's not um, coming. Like he came away from it from mimic, totally wrecked.
6: Well, that's that's the thing, isn't it? That's the comparison. He's Mm. like, right, the last time I worked in Hollywood, I got thoroughly rogered. Yeah. (laughs) So (laughs) this is an improvement, frankly.
2: So all the other podcasts that we do on Del Toro, I I always bring up like um, the use of essentially like totems or fetishes as a characterization tool for GDT. Like he does it in like most of his films. But in this film, no one has an object for them. Whistler has his ring, which if you excuse the fact that he pulls it off the back of a random old scale in a Prague safe house, mm. so how it got there, no one knows. Question.
6: But yeah, <laughs> yeah. but it just like, has his
2: sunglasses. Yeah, well, Damaskinos oh,
0: I, and, and his two children have that family ring of theirs, the family crest, and yeah, Nissa has her neck brace thing, which would have been quite useful to be wearing when she was bitten <laughs> by her brother.
2: Yeah, <laughs> and and um, Perlman's character has those those special um, pistols, but a lot of these are very surface level. So like, what's the deeper implication of Whistler's ring? Oh, well, he lost his wife. It's a nod to that part of his character, but he like, it's a, it's a strong enough part of his characterization that he hid the ring. So people couldn't get it even when he was kidnapped for reasons. Um, And it's a silver ring. I, you know, okay. It's appropriate. The family crest thing is just kind of like leading into the whole like family melodrama at the end. That it doesn't really plot
0: indicator. Plot is happening folks. folks. Pay attention.
2: and it's an indicator for the family, not specifically like the characters to yeah. a certain extent. Um, and then those pistols that Perlman used were actually originally made for Blade, and Wesley Snipes didn't want to use them. And Wesley so Snipes. less like, meaning there. Yeah, so there's no meaning there. And then in the commentary, which I did not like the commentary for this film that was just GDT because half of it is him just kind of talking about vampire myths and mm. not the film. But well, what else uh, are they
0: going to talk about? There's nothing there.
2: That's the point. Yeah. But, uh, but he specifically says at one point that uh, Wesley Snipes says Blade is not about hardware, it's about the character, but GDT characterizes people with the items they have. So, like, even the, the sunglasses are, like, they don't mean anything to the character, it's just something that he does, mm. you know what I mean? It's not like what we were talking about with Crimson Peak. Where the oh. digger is like super emblematic, specifically the toy digger is super emblematic of Hiddleston's yeah. character up, down, left, and right. Uh, it's just like it's a thing they do that you can sort of associate
0: with them. It's the difference between a world class writer and David Goya. <laughs> uh, and he by the way,
4: qualifies as a writer.
0: <laughs> I'm sorry, Lauren, I, di- I didn't mean you should like this commentary. I didn't like it much either. It was still better than the Kronos uh, commentary where he seemed miserable.
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, oh. But now you so you've mentioned Kronos twice now and I got to point this out Go for it. This this film has so much so many connections with Mimic and Kronos. Mm-hmm. It's kind of impressive to me. It's almost uh, a trilogy. In a really sad way, because um, the Kronos connections are slightly less than the Mimic ones, I think, because they're they're almost more direct. Because the Kronos device is literally sitting on the table in Domasquina's office, oh, yeah. and he himself is also that like marbley vampire, which is a direct like a, it's taken directly from Kronos, and I think it's fun that gdt even says that damaskina there's a lot of evidence to suggest that he was a made vampire not a born vampire which then makes me think that he just found the chronos device and it's just another strain of vampirism which would make the little insect inside of it like have the virus in it i guess mm. and that's how it works is that it like filters your blood through it and then re-injects the virus into you which is kind of like a neat continuation of that, but is all just implication, unlike the, the world-building inside the film. But Mimic, the connections to Mimic, are just all of the shots in the sewer, and a lot of the time how the Reapers are handled, even how they wipe out the Reapers is very much like they do in Mimic, except yeah. makes less physical sense. <laughs> oh my God, I hate how UV works in this movie. It goes around like, corners, doesn't it? Yeah, it goes yeah. Around, It It's it, UV light, which, you know, light... Being the operative word is slow enough that if you see it coming, you can dive underwater. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> and also, once you're underwater, it's like, you can't get me, like, there's no such thing as refraction. There's a, there's yeah. a, oh.
6: there's a phrase they might want to inform them of um, light speed. It's yeah. like really, really fast. It's, yeah. it, it is, in fact, faster than
2: that lady vampire. Mm-hmm. I'm ju- You know, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> And, of course, Norman Reedus is in uh, Mimic as well as Blade 2. Yeah, he is.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Not to mention that the Reaper strain was created in Blade 2 and kind of called to mind Mira Savino's Frankensteining of cockroaches to retroactively deal with a virus in Mimic. We aren't actually doing Mimic or Kronos. We didn't love them, and there wasn't that much to say about them.
2: But, yeah, so, like, there were a lot of times where I'd be watching it and I'd think, wow, this is just like that scene from Mimic, and it's not any better.
4: Like, <laughs> oh, yeah. There's also several scenes lifted from the Crow City of Angels. Oh, really? Um, per- particularly when Blade, uh, uh, at the end, goes after Rush in the uh, peep show. That is right out of Crow City of Angels. And there are several of those throughout. And Crow City of Angels is honestly the first movie I remember being disappointed in. I was like 10 years old, I adored The Crow. I snuck into the theater uh because they wouldn't send they wouldn't sell me a ticket to it. And I watched this movie and oh, it was so bad. That was David Goya.
6: He's plagiarizing yeah. himself. Yeah,
4: and he's he plagiarizes himself in this movie so much partic- from what is arguably one of his worst in a string of bad movies. Yeah. Ugh.
5: I do like the fact that this, this is set in Prague, and personally I've been to Prague a couple of times, and I love it. And the city feels... And this is probably from Del Toro, being that he is Spanish, so European. It does have a distinctly different aesthetic, at least to me, from the first one. It feels older. And probably partially from... with Damaskinos, And we get more old underground passages and what looks like you know sewers that have been around for a thousand years or the, in the you know whatever whatever the lair of damaskinos which looks from the inside looks like very very gothic and very very much like a castle it feels like a distinctly different aesthetic mm. to the first movie and it feels very european which i like
0: there's also, it's almost entirely shot at night. I can't think of a single daytime actual shoot. I know that the daylight comes in through the sewer grate when Redhead gets killed. But that does, conversely, lend it a sense of unreality. Like, it's a world entirely at night. And we don't really get to see humans doing any human things. It's just vampires. Which leads me to my next point. When the vampires are going towards the club and they start loading up their guns in the street, GDT in his commentary says, "Cause this is fantasy. It's, uh, it's just a fun action horror movie, and you shouldn't... Well, I don't think he says you shouldn't ask questions about it, but it doesn't adhere to uh, 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 the logic of the real world. But that's that's the opposite of how they set out in the original Blade. Like, they, 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 they begin with the world is you know, real, and, you know, hematologists, and, you know, the, then just underneath the surface is the world of vampires. By the way, here's Pearl. And... Uh, <laughs> And then it kind of goes <laughs> crazy. But that that kind of like leans towards the, the idea that like when Goya started it, it was like, let's make this as real as possible. And it gradually became less real with this like fantastical trip in the middle where it doesn't really adhere to any kind of sense. I mean, there's a bit in the first Blade where he shoots at a white cop in broad daylight in L.A. in a crowded street. <laughs> and that... That's off-the-wall fantasy, even in 1998. Yeah, especially in 1998.
4: Mm. That was two years... What was it, two years after uh, Rodney King? It, it was... 96, I think? Yeah, it would have been very, very
5: fresh in people's minds. Yeah, the so. L.A. riots were recent, recent history at yeah. that point. Los Angeles is yeah.
0: horribly racially charged. But, of course, none of that affects David Goyer, a, uh, a, a middle-class, affluent white man who writes scripts for a living. I don't honestly know what Wesley Snipes thought of that scene because he's one of the only people who actually would have had power. If you listen to uh, his commentary with Goya on Blade 2, is like this little kid deferring to Snipes all the time and there's this power balance between them where what Snipes says goes and is trying to constantly keep him happy. Bear in mind, this is before they shot Blade Trinity so they're still quote-unquote friends. I, I was logging things that pissed me off about that particular commentary. Uh, for a start, Goya, despite his adoration of Snipes, apparently didn't know what kind of martial arts training Snipes had undergone. He doesn't know what Snipes is trained in. He asked him there after they'd finished filming and released the second Blade movie. What kind of what, what kind of kung fu do you do there, Wesley? Uh, He didn't know what the BPRD was. He said it was something to do with Hellboy and that Del Toro put that uh, um, T-shirt on Daryl. He wanted Nissa to take off that neck protector and open up her shirt so she could be a, and I quote, vampire hottie. He didn't like the neck material. He wanted her to, he didn't want her to be Trinity. He wanted her to be a sexy vampire. For him, because women are objects for his pleasure. Uh, uh, he had no idea about Reaper biology All of that came from Del Toro Like that, that whole like we're going to take these, this thing apart scene Del Toro wrote that Clearly put that together They got like a sucker thing Like a fist with teeth A bathroom plunger Maybe they got wings I don't know Can they see in the dark Can they glow in the dark He mentioned at the end Referring to Nyssa dying I've seen women kind of tear up at the end of this movie Where she kind of turns to dust That's a direct quote Women.
6: Isn't that the whole point? That people get emotionally invested in her death?
0: And then when he got to that scene with uh, uh, Snipes, they pretend cried. They were like, so sad. And uh, he joined Snipes in mocking her and the tone of that moment. The only good Uh. bit in the film. And then they talked about the prospects for Blade 3 and I was like, oh, my sweet summer child.
6: (laughs) Blade 3, such as
0: it is. Uh, Snipes' ideas were Blade gets laid blade three blade gets laid uh he wanted a cooler outfit and a bevy of bitches
4: there's the testosterone going through that just i don't even know what to say it is so it is everything wrong with goyer's style and i guess Snipes' style as a result kind of falls back on this on the toxic masculinity bullshit yeah it
0: really does
6: Speaking of uh, things that we like about the movie and...
0: Blade Two, uh, Blade Two. I was going to say, Blade Trinity? No.
6: We'll we'll, we'll get to that and the list will be short. Um, But um, no, what I was going to say before that I thought you were going to talk about, but then you didn't, um, was uh, Del Toro's lighting style, Mm. which is, this is something that he repeats um, in multiple films. And I love his remark in one commentary that he made about the fact that he's, he's, making the same film over and over again yeah. um, and so we'll sometimes he makes it better than other times so. <laughs> yeah, sometimes he makes it better than others um, but he, he certainly uses the same lighting effects um, repeatedly. And we've already talked about them in the the, the uh, podcasts that we've already recorded. But in this, he kind of turns it about. He uses warm golden light for the nighttime scenes. When they're safe. Um, because, that, because in this, everybody's a vampire and everybody is safe at night. And during the day, he uses that cold... Um, steely blue light um, that suggests disconnection and threat, and um, I, I think to pretty good effect in this. To be honest, um, it's it's it gives you a good tone to it. Um, and the other thing that I, I like about this film is Nyssa
0: yeah, I like And too. I really
6: liked the end scene, so Goya,
0: I love the end <laughs> yeah. scene. Double me Mergoya. Same.
6: It's, it's, it, it was very reminiscent for me of um, one of the first vampire stories I ever read um when i was reasonably young um if we discount the abridged lady bird dracula that i read when i was about 5 um the uh, it was sort of a a teenage vampire romance and i can't even remember what happened through the bulk of the story and it was it was probably sort of proto twilight type fiction the final scene of the book was that the the vampire boy decided that he didn't want to pose a threat to the girl he was in love with and so he walks out into the sunlight and lets himself burn to death Mm. and that kind of has always been something that's been in my head about uh the 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 self sacrifice of the vampire who embraces the day because that's not just because they want to die but because it's it's something that they miss and something that they they wish they could have one more time before they go and obviously it's going to mean their end
0: i'm obviously a writer i'm obviously someone who adores del toro you'll find that out in the next few weeks folks but um the hearing del toro respects and likes David Goyo a lot. Reminded me of a scene in Bridesmaids. Annie, played by Kristen Wiig, has a busted car, has to call to be picked up by someone she trusts. It's John Hamm.
3: Boom!
2: What's up, fuck buddy? Call for some roadside assistance?
0: Nathan, the cop who has her best interests at heart, played by Chris O'Dowd, Thanks, officer. I can handle it from here on out. Takes one long look at the guy who just pulled up looks at Annie incredulously and says, Come on! And that's how I felt listening to the commentary of David Goyer talking through Blade Two. Come on, dingus.
1: Tick-tock, I got shit to do.
0: Someone who fundamentally doesn't get the brilliance of the director who was handed his shitty script. That bothers me. It bothers me that I have to, like, potentially, like, it's almost certainly never gonna fall into his ears, but if del Toro listens to this and goes, oh, you insult my friend, I am never speaking to this man. And rightly so, but I just feel fucking wretched that that's the state of affairs. There was another film series where the first one took the premise seriously, even though it was all so funny. And then the sequel was just kind of a mess around in that world, which failed to capture the quality of the original whilst bringing in its own fun to the table. Uh, And then a horribly mismanaged third instalment that everybody wishes didn't exist. Uh, And then an ill-judged TV show. Robocop. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Because there was a Blade TV show, which didn't have Wesley Snipes, but uh, starred as Blade, a man named Sticky Fingers, who sounds lovely. Or if you prefer the trifecta of aliens followed by alien resurrection or aliens versus predator, whichever you prefer, followed by alien versus predator requiem
5: yeah. it's, it's yeah. kind of that
0: that oh. yeah
2: it was like I told you when we were talking about that earlier, Alex, yeah. and this is almost like the like an, a weird inverse of aliens resurrection, blade two mm. because they're both. They, they take previous world building, they try to do something else with it, and ultimately fail. The only they add Ron di- Perlman. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> yeah, yeah we'll have Ron Perlman. Uh, the only difference, I think, is Blade Two is kind of worse than the reputation and that I remember. And the last time I watched Alien Resurrection, it was a little better than the reputation and I remember. Not great. They're not gr- neither one's great. But that's the only real difference. I was, it's very strange.
0: Most people seem to like Blade 1 and 2 and hate the third one. No no one tends to point out the difference in in approach really between 1 and 2 because you can just take them both as fun uh, like D- D- Del Toro describes the first one as an uh, an action movie and the second one as an action horror. But he, by his own admission, he says that the Reapers aren't particularly scary and he's kind of more fascinated by their biology, which means that it's an action horror, but the horror isn't scary, which means that it's an action film, which means well, it's yeah. not that different.
2: But the action's all shot and choreographed like a dance, which is different from action. So yeah. it's not even much of an action film. Hmm.
6: So what you're saying essentially is that it is a, a film. film. <laughs>
2: Only on the most technical level. (laughs) So, I I don't... Before we leave Blade 2, though, I have two questions that I really want to just see if any of you have an answer for. All right. Because I do not have an answer. If it is so darn easy to cure vampirism that he can find whistler who is out of it for two years oh, yeah. bathing in the in the virus and can go cold turkey in one night less than one night because he brings him back throws him in there gives him the antiretroviral and says like well i hope you got the willpower to deal with this because those lines are coming up in the morning it's scientology you have
0: to want to not be a vampire
2: yeah yeah and uh, first off who would? Who really wouldn't want to be a vampire? Like you give me that dark embrace, I am all for it. But that's
0: beside the point. <laughs> I totally would not. Really? Wow! If well, I have I to know, hang around there. with these assholes, of course not. Yeah, exactly. You know,
2: there's a whole world you could go
0: find a cool set of vampires. Jeez, not the ones in this in film bloggers. series. <laughs> I could be and a sparkly vampire out of Twilight, because so, they so, they're all day walkers.
2: The ones in LA, we definitely only meet the douchebaggy ones. I bet some of those nightclub goers are just into vampirism for the scene. Mm. My point is, if it is so easy to cure vampirism, why don't they weaponize a cure rather than murdering all of them? Since we've established that so many of the vampires that have been turned, the horizontal transmission did it not necessarily of their own will or volition, aren't they kind of victims in all this? Because the only reason they're feral and like evil and killing people is because of the thirst, something that you would think that Blade would have some kind of, you know, feelings about yeah. and then go, oh, hey, instead of EDT or EDTA, we're going to make people's heads explode. Why don't we fill it with the antiretroviral, which apparently is as rough as going through heroin withdrawal, but much, much faster? And just be like, oh, hey, guess what? In an hour, you're going to be, like, a lot clearer-minded and not a vampire anymore. Go with God. Like,
6: Well, doesn't Karen say at the end of the first one that she's improved it to the point where it's a it's a viable kill? Yeah,
0: and Blade says, I don't need it. I've got a million vampires to murder. It's like, <laughs> Goya, you do understand that he's decided to kill people who don't need to be killed. That makes him the greatest monster in the world. I'm protecting would,
4: people. Oh you though. Know. <laughs> I would argue that he that it ta- it clearly takes some time for that cure to work. and attempting to cure people means that you either have to a throw them in a locked room for the night and hope that they survive, or b, hope sorry. that they crawl someplace and don't get just reembraced immediately. Well, but Like, so like he, there, there, there are hundreds upon hundreds of vampires, he does not have the time or resources to cure them all individually.
2: So the antiretroviral would create antibodies against the vampirism and would make you immune from that point on. So, like, that's how that works, like, in real life, if we were to make something like that. So, but it still just, it bothers me, because we've also established that the vampires like to make blood farms. So, spike their food source. Like, even in the first film, they go to a blood bank at one point, and they're like, oh, they deliver, and all that. It's like, okay, well, like... What if you got in and, like, spiked their food source with this this antiretroviral? I, it just seems strange to me. Okay, okay. Yeah, that you, like could, they,
6: you could yeah. also make it part of the standard vaccination program for children, mm. and thereby humans would gradually become immune to the virus over time.
0: As in, right. lo, that's the L- Logan thing with the corn syrup? Mm. Jesus. Yes. And that's the thing. is like, you have this... this you can silence the shit out of this vampire plague. <laughs>
2: Yeah. Well, and, and Karen, I think her name was from the first movie,
0: completely edited she, out. Like she didn't even know there was a Blade Two happening. She was like, "What?"
2: Well, so so that's that's the thing though. Is the like, Bush she's, right. a, she's a brilliant hematologist that cured vampirism, which is a vague in days HIV in days. What's being kidnapped like, twice? Like, is she out there, like, pushing for this? Why isn't she out there going like, oh, hey, this is a thing. Why don't we do it? Or even, like, more subtly. I don't know. It because, just seems uh, yeah. it, it, very There's simple. A, a, a vaccine for anemia. <laughs>
0: There's a very right? simple answer. It's because David Goyer doesn't question himself, and he doesn't want to question he doesn't want his character's questioned or have any of these philosophical debates. It's just about killing suckheads.
6: Cuz it's devastating to my future career Hence
0: prospects. the actual end yeah. of this, the end of this trilogy, they release the same vampire like turn you all into vampires plague as the blood god from the first one, only it's the other way around. It disintegrates all vampires. The plot is All the vampires in the world die. They murder everyone. They explode. They experience terrible pain and die. Blade commits genocide.
2: And that that begs the question, why didn't you do the same thing, but with a cure, since you have it? Or, hey, why didn't I look at Wikipedia for five minutes and understand that an airborne retroviral thing like that isn't going to work outside of that building? Because that's how...
0: We'll get to that (laughs) because (laughs) everything about Trinity is stupid.
2: Okay. My 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 second question in the last. Oh my god, that wasn't it. That was one. My second question that I have about Blade Two, and then I will be done with Blade Two. Why do we focus on the Powerpuff Girls three times in this film? Uh, That's because
0: according to David Goyer. According to David Goya, he's getting in touch with his fruity feminine side.
6: Did he actually yeah. use that phrase? He
0: didn't use the word fruity, but he was like, uh, maybe he's getting in touch with the feminine side. And Snipes commented, yeah, he's a powder puff. What? Uh, oh. Yeah.
4: I like that. The reason why they were using Powerpuff Girls is because they couldn't get the rights to Speed Racer. Yeah. The Seriously? domestic rights to Speed Racer, they couldn't get them, so they had to use Powerpuff Girls instead there's no rhyme or reason behind it they wanted daryl to watch cartoons
2: yeah that's just so lazy it just bothers me so much
4: yeah if there is another piece of media on during your movie it had better have some
2: relation to the themes yeah or at least the character (laughs) top of my head why wouldn't it just be, like, a Blade TV show? Like, how funny would that be? It's like, oh, it's a Blade animated show because he's, like, this mythical figure in this world. Oh, okay, that's kind of cool.
0: Um, yeah. The amazing Sp- the original 90s Spider-Man had a Blade bit in it, and so they could probably just show yeah. bits of that on the screen. Yeah, but Marvel where, where, would have said, Wichler no, we can't use for. our Spider-Man.
4: Oh, Whistler wow. was not a comic original. He was invented for that episode of Spider-Man. By Goya, I think. Oh, wow. It
0: might have been, yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's credited, he's credited on that episode, so he actually contributed towards that. So probably Marvel kept him around there like this guy, this guy knows his comic books, this guy hates everything about comic books. We need him to do all the comic book adaptations. That, did you catch yeah. What he's self conscious he about. about all of it.
6: He was he was talking in the commentary about um, reading comic books when he grew up, and he was like, Yeah, I, I used to read Marvel comics when I was a kid, and I grew up on comic books. And then when I was a bit older, I started reading DC. Fuck
4: off. (laughs) Yeah. Fuck off.
0: (laughs) Oh, Uh, man. Anyhow. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get to Blade Trinity, shall we? Because God damn... Mm.
6: Well, can I just say by the way Lauren listening to you talk about the, the medical flaws in certain things mm-hmm. is amazing and I love it <laughs> yeah oh. one of the reasons we brought you on as
0: a, as a doctor
6: <laughs> Mikey Newman's just done a video about Jarhead and he was talking about watching it with a marine and, and mm-hmm. the, you just there are certain things you just can't watch with industry professionals because they know the bullshit
4: yeah we didn't. Talk-
6: you can't even say
4: well it's just a movie you need to suspend disbelief because the movie makes a point of the medical stuff being
2: important mm-hmm. exactly
0: <laughs> we didn't talk about the fight scenes and the amount of millennial rubber that oh, got in there
1: Oh yeah! my yeah. god
0: the scene where the lights are bright behind them and they turn from wow. like real people that we've seen j- jumping around the place to then suddenly these wibbly wobbly cartoons it's disgusting.
6: I, I figured out what is one of the fundamental issues with that, by the way. We've, we've talked in the past about one of the problems with CG is where the light falls, and mm-hmm. that's something they've only just started getting right recently. One of the things that really makes it stick out is there is no fundamental difference between the way the light falls on Blade's face at that point and the way it falls on his clothes. Yeah. They are both... Shiny.
0: Also, the the skeletal musculature of these characters, when they're leaping about the place, like their bones become made of rubber. You know when I say millennial rubber? It's because their legs bend like (laughs) fucking dog toys. It's
6: not just the UV light blade goes round corners now.
0: (laughs) But Luke Goss, and we're going to talk about him like crazy when we get to Hellboy 2, as a, a try-out run for Prince Nuada... This was a really great, like, fiery character that he played. And I wish he'd been in it a lot more Mm. because he's a great, potentially great character. Yeah and like del toro had him designed with the the hood up and this sort of like slightly tatty outfit so he looks something like somewhere between a derelict and a, a, like a medieval hunter like he's he's on the prowl and he, there is a real like the way he's like feverishly feeding at the beginning and then the middle several times like he's a dangerous dangerous being and honestly, it feels like Blade, like, would be the only person who could cope with him in this world. Mm,
6: indeed. And the other thing with the CG is the uh, the weight problem. Mm. Um, and this it is a problem normally when CG figures appear to have no real dimension or presence or weight when they land but for blade you have spent a film and a quarter building up the fact that yeah. this guy is solid he's massive and when he lands on the ground dust flies up yeah. and you feel like the concrete just got dented a little bit he is big and stacked and you when he lands that thing that you said about snipes doing the superhero landing mm-hmm. it uh-huh. tells you how solid he is and how much he weighs, and then when he flicks to CG, that is all dissipated.
0: Mm. Okay, Blade Trinity. Chief Reed, what's your take on all these rumors we've been hearing about vampires? If vampires existed, don't you think we would have found them by now?
2: People want to be concerned. We should focus in on characters like this Blade criminal.
1: You're public enemy number one. Let's go, let's go, let's go! We're going to have to take on the rest of the world, too. I see you alone, surrounded by enemies. We can't win this war alone.
6: We use the humans to flush you (laughs)
1: out. Even, ladies. This way! Who the hell are you people?
6: My father meant for us to help you. Where
1: are you going?
6: This is supposed to be a
1: rescue. Whistler's daughter. I got my sword.
5: There's something beneath
1: us. What you amateurs are supposed to be helping me? You kids, you're not ready to go with this. What the hell makes you think you know about hundred vampires? Just for starters, I used to be one.
6: He's come back.
1: Empire final solution.
3: We are all you got.
1: There's nothing stopping them now. Just me.
0: I could start by talking about what a mess the third film is, and the production woes are infinitely more interesting than the events of the movie. But instead, I'm going to touch on the streak of sadism running throughout the trilogy. Goya wrote all three, so this is all on him. The way Blade treats familiars is one of the keystones. He humiliates, tortures and beats the shit out of these unrepentant slaves. There's never any sense of sympathy for them until Hannibal comes along and it doesn't become a question posed by the film even though the nature of their humanity is right there to be explored. We even begin with Blade murdering a human and that being a legal problem that might just affect him ethically as well. At least it would if both threads weren't dropped immediately. And, of course, if he hadn't already abused and murdered a dozen of these guys over the past two films anyway. Torturing and executing them does something troubling to us as people. This extends to the treatment of vampires in the films. To begin with, they're all absolutely evil predators. Then we meet a few who aren't, or who come back from being vampires. But then we have to ignore that fact and continue the crusade without question. The Jabba the hut looking creature Pearl in the first film is burned to death, screaming before our eyes, and the effect tilts towards darkly humorous. We find out in the extras that Pearl eats infants that he is bought by vampires, but in his tiny, gasping death screams, it's hard not to feel sorry for this wretched thing. And that's right and good. We should empathise, even with monsters, even if they have to be removed from the world. We should not take sadistic pleasure in their torture and death. What's in here? Nothing. It's just a storeroom. But you're wasting your time. There's nothing of importance to anyone.
1: you won't mind if I take a peek? No!
0: He moved, And it, it's such a grey area because when the vampires run at Blade screaming and he dispatches them swiftly and decisively with his gadgets and martial arts powers, it's immensely satisfying action. And if we start overthinking our entertainment to the point where every violent act upsets us, then we kill our ability to just enjoy a good versus evil action romp. But the Pearl scene isn't that, and it's really uncomfortable. It was when I was 18, and it is now that I'm 38. The Blood Packs treatment of the trapped Reaper is the same, and Del Toro always sympathizes with monsters, so he knew that while filming, which makes the scum-sucking vampires the villains in this film, where they're supposed to be anti-heroes. Frost's beating and murder of Whistler, Blades' impaling of his smug predatory mother, Nomek's savage mutilation and turning of his sister leading to her suicide, Blades' two crucifixions to extract his blood and show us how special he is, these are all signs of a writer who hurts his characters more than he needs to for reasons that don't serve the story sufficiently. Natasha Leon's character of Summerfield in Blade Trinity is a blind mother who's great with computers and reads Odd's books to her daughters. This is a potentially excellent female character to juxtapose against Abigail's Iron Woman. Do you remember what happened to Patton Oswalt or the nameless Black Driver, the only other person of colour in the film, when Dracula infiltrated the hero's base? Was there any real reason he didn't just kill Hannibal? No, the only death of note is Summerfield, who is tortured and strung up, cruciform, and terrified for her daughter, fridged to make Abigail feel something which it briefly does, only to be forgotten. It's also important to note that Natasha Leon was in the midst of serious emotional issues and drug addiction during filming, and this ordeal definitely didn't help. It's rotten as fuck, an exemplary of the nasty, puerile approach to life, women, friendship and violence that David Goya holds to project after project. Blade Trinity was his directorial debut, and he was unable to cope with the pressures of a director. His production was poisonous and hostile. Wesley Snipes choked him, and they both wanted each other off the film. Snipes retreated to his trailer, communicating by post-it notes that he would sign only as Blade. That sounds funny, but it's not something Hollywood benefits from. It can only hurt. Snipes was so threatened by Reynolds and the very idea that he needed strong support actors that he experienced what sounds like a breakdown, ending up refusing to even open his eyes when on a table at the end. They had no climax to this movie because they had no material to work with and Goya has no empathy for emotional pain and had no story to tell. Hence, at least three different endings, none of them meaningful. The third one is Ryan Reynolds and Jessica Biel, because they couldn't get Wesley Snipes to do any more scenes. Running around in Vegas, hunting for a werewolf. Because all the vampires were wiped out, and Wesley Snipes won't come out of his trailer to be Blade, so werewolves with these guys? Sequel? Blade Trinity is unwatchably bad to most people, and I am baffled by the few friends that i have who actually like it i know reynolds is charming and funny and parker posey choose the scenery but aren't there other films to celebrate these exact qualities deadpool and best in show just off the top of my head goya laid ghost rider low with spirit of vengeance and shat out jumper He contributed to Batman Begins and The Dark Knight in a capacity that feels lighter every year we become more familiar with his overall style. He helped ruin Man of Steel and Batman v Superman and has been selected for Terminator, Green Lantern, Sandman and He-Man projects. It's not enough that he's a terrible writer. He has to be a terrible writer that gets handed stories, characters and worlds that people care about to then despoil and ruin It goes so much deeper than Goya the man and becomes an unending crisis with Goya the creator. I hate his writing, but I lament his career path far more.
6: So, you didn't like it then?
0: No, I did not.
6: (laughs)
2: So a legitimate question that I have, based on the understanding, is if vampirism is a virus, how is there a Dracula? (laughs) That's, That's like, oh, you know, somebody was just born spontaneously with HIV. That's what that's saying. It's just like, okay, that's... That's kind of not how that works. It's like a lot messier of a process. It comes process. from simian nature or simian vampirism. Oh, of <laughs> course. Wait, so this dude was born in ancient Samaria, who just had all these vampire powers and just was a latent carrier of this retrovirus, which makes zero sense. But that does beg the question. So his natural form is like a weird demon thing. Does he? Was he a demon when he was a child? <laughs>
0: <laughs> like little Hellboy.
6: Yeah. He uh, came uh, out uh, very spiky. That's how we knew something was wrong.
0: <laughs> Why would you kill... Whistler and then bring his daughter in immediately afterwards and give her no one to dramatically clash with.
4: There's only so many things that you can do in Goyer world to hurt your character and one of them is killing off people close to them. Mm. But he also needed them to have a backup.
0: a, A sidekick. So... It doesn't even make sense. Like Keep Whistler alive a little bit longer so that then... Abigail and Blade are united as almost a brother and sister team, both mourning his death. Yeah. Like, have him killed instead of Natasha Leon during that scene.
2: Also, that begs the question how did Blade not know about the Night Stalkers? Like, did he never run into one or two of them, like, out on his job? And just be like, oh, sorry. You call dibs. Like, how has he... If this is such an extensive network of he's vampire hunters... he's
0: murdered thousands.
2: Yeah. And that's just the familiars that we know about.
0: Mm.
2: Yeah, it's a, it just... It made me very curious as to why that was. Yeah. Um, why do they feel the need to explain everything in this movie? <laughs> like, when Patton Oswald says, like, oh, like, would you like a party favor? And she says, lucky sevens. Could have left it at that, but then turns to the camera and says... Uh, something about it being silver-plated hollow points. And Blade's like, okay, that's like, you know, they're bullets that kill vampires. We've seen that that's a thing. Just yeah. calling them Lucky Sevens just adds mystique to it. It does world building. Yeah. I'm reasonably um, certain that David Goyer only
4: thinks thinks that all bullets are hollow point bullets. Or at least those are the most badass kind of bullet in the world. Because yeah. well, everything is fucking hollow point in this movie.
2: And, and you can fill them with garlic, my goodness.
4: Yeah, um, but the points are hollow. You can fill them with anything. Oh, exactly.
0: And then she gets out that, like, gadget that goes, it's half as hot as the sun. No, it's not. Because as soon as she put it on, she'd explode and burst into flames, (laughs) as would everyone in the room.
2: At that point, I was like, why don't you just make a lightsaber, Patton Oswald? Known geek. (laughs) Um, Yeah. But then also, like, they go to the blood farm, and they literally have to spell out, it's a blood farm. These, it's like, no, we can see that. These are clearly humans that are in a coma with blood draining out of them. We
0: finally got the budget to do more than just four in a fridge. The other
6: one. Yeah. Yeah. The other one, the piece of exposition that doesn't need to exist and makes me want to bite off someone's fucking head Whoa. every time I hear it. Cool. <laughs> um, right. You're lucky, Alex. But I thought Whistler's family were all killed by vampires.
0: Unless she goes...
6: Fuck off with what she says next.
0: She goes... I was born out of wedlock a few years later.
6: It doesn't matter. It
0: no. really
6: doesn't matter. Is that
0: the least amount of characterization for Abigail in the whole film?
6: That is the most amount of characterization for <laughs> Abigail in the whole film. Even Jessica Biel clearly hated delivering that line, and I can tell because she does it with the flat, uninterested tone that she does everything else in this. Uh,
0: ugh. And like the, the beginning, like her little sting operation, where she's like, "Oh, I can't wait for these four vampires to come and try and rape me." I'm gonna, my plan is I'm gonna I'm gonna throw the baby at one of them. I'll get punched in the gut, and then I'll fight them with my fists. And then as a coup de grace, I'll get out this thing that's half as hot as the sun. No, don't get punched in the gut at all. As soon as they turn up, whip out that thing that's half as hot as the sun and kill them in three seconds.
6: <laughs> what was it you said? Maybe lead with that. yeah Maybe
0: lead with that next time. It's from Iron Man Two, but it's relevant.
6: <laughs> (laughs) (laughs)
2: um but since i mentioned the blood farm why is it so easy to shut down they type in the password for it is a single word and that password password. (laughs) and the word is harvest and it kills all of these people so that's just more of a body count for blade right
6: Mm. god oh yeah humans that he's just
2: offed yeah they just shut them off um
6: that Why are you like a mercy just killing. go and pull plug at a hospital that that didn't while you're right feel like emergency
2: No. yeah, but it just it, it just seems like if you're going to go through all the trouble of stealing homeless people off the streets, putting them in medically induced comas and somehow you know you must provide some kind of t p n to keep them alive, we see that there's uh like uh catheter bags like so they're they're like their bodies are functioning so it's they're actually like pumping in food so like that's a really busy operation that would take a lot of manpower a lot of things like that seriously with more than a couple of those in the country that's going to be a significant portion of like the iv fluids that we're going to be making and like you know goodness after the puerto rico thing that happened earlier this year they wouldn't be able to make any of those tpns it's a huge logistical fiasco we can't
0: make jokes when you're talking about puerto rico i
2: just i gotta think about it that way but um but to, to do that this huge logistical nightmare and be like oh you know what you type in a six-letter word and they all die. Excuse <laughs> me? What? But this is Deacon the Frost's appropriate
4: six-letter word too. It's not like a random combination of
0: letters and numbers.
2: Wait, wait, sorry, seven-letter word. I don't want to get that wrong.
0: And you don't need to oh, add right. a letter and a capital letter and some punctuation. <laughs>
6: exactly. That S just... should be a five. But
0: this is Deacon Frost's batshit mental plan from the first one, actually sort of working. This is this is Goya writing a plot that. He's thought half about, maybe, and then abandoned. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it actually makes sense for them to do this for the posh vampires who don't want to go hunt someone down and then endanger their cushy existence because they've got murder on their record. Oh, they oh, they would just go, right, I'll have some derelict juice, please. You know, just yeah. send 52 because, bottles uh, of this to my chateau. Yeah.
4: Apparently after about 1,100 murders, then you get caught. Yeah. <laughs> yes.
2: Uh, Which also begs the question, how are they keeping the blood non-coagulated? Are they using EDTA? Does it just kill everyone who drinks it?
0: But James Remar is on the case. Don't even worry about it. Like he goes, up, <laughs> they go on TV and they're like, "So are vampires real?" And the response is not simply, "No, obviously not." What the fuck are you talking about? Vampires real? What show is this? And are we oh, going to my- carry on with that thread? Is that actually a thing that's happening in the world? Are people questioning are vampires real? No, it's not a thread. It's just sort of there and then it disappears again, like everything else. <laughs> Okay, so could the person who likes this film please reveal themselves?
6: That would be me. Why? <laughs> for everything Lauren just said.
0: Okay, no, 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 no. Act, get, Let us speak. Go, go for it. And, and, and as, as many times as you can explain why and go into as much depth, even if there's no depth and you're just like, well, it was fun and I like this.
5: First off, I'm fully aware this is not an objectively good movie and most of the things that you criticized I'm 100% on board with just, just to put that disclaimer out there but I have a huge soft spot for over the top action movies and especially over the top action movies with a female lead like the Tomb Raider movies I love them Wanted Wanted is one of my favorite movies of all time are they dumb yes Are they that well written? No. There's... But... Usually, in most cases, it's Angelina Jolie kicking ass. I am gonna have a hell of a good time. Same with this movie. Is Jessica Biel... She apparently trained insanely hard for this movie. And I am unendingly impressed... With her skill... In fighting and using the bow in she looks competent. and and I'm not an expert in martial arts, so I can't say, you know, I'm sure someone who knows those things would have nitpicks, but she looks competent. She I buy her as a leader of this group and I buy her as a fighter. And those are the things, those more than anything else are things that I absolutely love. Also, I have a soft spot for Ryan Reynolds in this movie. Um, He was clearly, even though apparently he was pretty miserable making this, he did seem to be putting his heart into it. And also, I buy him as a fighter, and I'm of the opinion that this movie is the reason we got him as Deadpool. Because before this movie, he was what, Van Wilder? and I think seeing him here I buy him as a competent fighter I buy him as a leader of this group snarkiness aside he, the others seem to respect him and follow his orders without question and I believe that I, I buy him as leader and I buy her as leader and I, I love to see just a woman getting to kick ass and at least some people not questioning her for it and not giving
0: her shit. So it's kind of like when the Alicia Vikander Tomb Raider came out, and a lot of people were sort of looking looking back on the um, Angelina Jolie uh, original pairing and being hypercritical of them, and a lot of women were coming forward and going, well, actually, they may have been not fantastic movies, but this was energizing to see a woman finally in the spotlight, kicking ass, and that was inspiring to me.
5: Yes.
6: personally would have liked to see the relationship between Hannibal and Abigail developed. Um, maybe more focus on that and less focus on Dracula or even Blade really. It's feels like there could have been more to it in terms of moving on in that that sense and i get what you mean about the deadpool thing and i in fact i said the other day my head canon is that uh wade had a a stint under an assumed name working for blade in (laughs) in the early part of his career yes Um, this is ryan reynolds who we know is great at handling dialogue handling pretty bad dialogue but delivering it in a way that still gives it some kick Yes, exactly.
5: Mm-hmm. Like, even though it's not good dialogue, he's bringing his own brand of snark and his own brand of energy. liveliness, energy, mm-hmm. to the dialogue. And so I, I still enjoy him delivering it, delivering it, even though it's not good. Mm-hmm. He is putting 110% into this delivery, which makes me enjoy it.
6: I was just going to say, there is one line, I can't even remember what the line is, but he he says something which is intended to be sort of an insult to Blade, and then Blade walks away, and he gets this expression on his face that almost says, oh my God, I'm slightly disgusted with myself that I said that. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think the way it's intended to be read is that he feels like, why the hell did I say that to Blade, who could snap my neck like a twig? But it comes across slightly as... Reynolds being sort of slightly apologetic for the the delivery of the bad (laughs) line.
5: Again, the Summerfield fridging thing, yes, that's awful. No question, that's that's awful. However, Jessica Biel's reaction to it Mm. is some stellar acting. That felt like a real person reacting to their friend dying. And that little moment, and then Blade says, use that, hit me hard. That bit feels good and well done.
0: Although and it's, it's a- exactly, as it, it's, it's almost acknowledged by Blade as being the same shit that happened in the original. It's like, we want to summon you for the final battle, so we're going to kill this person you care about. Yes. Which, which I suppose would have been like more and yet less appropriate had it been Whistler again. Because I actually, honestly, I wish they hadn't brought Whistler back. I think that the, yeah. what I described as, as yeah. what they could have done for uh, Blade 2 would have been so much better had Whistler not been there and for Blade to have to re-examine his father figure without him present as opposed to just, hey, how's it going? we got all the gang back together? Right, let's go to Prague and do some stuff.
6: Which, it could be argued, is the only way that you can really examine your, your parental figures is you need mm. to remove the lens of them being there to be able to do yeah. it clearly.
0: But test well. the audiences of the original Blade liked Chris Christopherson so much, they had to bring him back, and they gave themselves the out by saying, well, we didn't actually see him die on camera, and so that dramatic moment is now uh, not completely null and void, but effectively just a sort of a, a, a pause rather than a full stop to this character. And again, we're seeing... The audience is like this, so we carried on doing that, indicating that Blade is a series created to make money rather than because D- Goya had stories to tell. And yeah. that's that's fine. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to... like. Not <laughs> all series have to be there to actually tell a story. But the, I love Marvel because they do tell stories. It may be the same story over and over again. This man baby needs to grow up. But... We're getting beyond (laughs) that now, and Black Panther, specifically, and and Ragnarok have some stuff in them.
6: Sometimes you have to tell the same story over a few times to let it sink in. (laughs) Um, As does Hong Kong. But here's the thing, though. No movies don't necessarily always have to have a story to tell, and a lot of the time they won't. But writers... Writers yeah. have to have a story to tell. If you're a Whereas writer what and you aren't are they
0: telling a story, what you are doing is facilitating money changing hands. Which
6: makes you a yeah. producer. Yeah. <laughs> go be a yeah. producer, Dave. He is. In fact, there we go. Remove the name Goya. He is now Dave. Dave, go and be a producer. That's clearly what you want to do. You want to come up with ideas and have other people shape them for you. That's what a yeah, producer... Yeah, but
0: producers can. have too much power. He thinks that Martian Manhunter sucks and no one wants to know about him, hence no Martian Manhunter. Well, he somehow justice. convinced we might be people being to let him influence ever.
6: this as a writer anyway, mm. so...
0: The, the sooner that the DC... Extended universe people like now they've shunted Zack Snyder away. Shunt Goya as well. You need to get away from this shit. It is actually retroactive, it's hurting yeah. you. Yeah, yeah, and it always has been. Dracula. No, don't. Do oh, Dracula. I never talked about this Dracula. This this Dracula. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, Dominic Purcell is the worst casting they could have possibly mm. done for this. He's such a nothing. <laughs> Gerard Butler in Dracula Two Thousand better Dracula than this.
6: Yeah. I did. Th- and yeah. he's
0: one of the worst.
6: I did think of a worse Dracula than this. The Dracula in that god awful animated show that we have on YouTube.
0: You mean the one who eats a hamburger? Yes. That's a, f- a film, Dracula. Um. The uh, Sovereign of the Damned. The anime. Mm. No, anime, yeah. Sharon. Uh, I, honestly, I think that Dracula, with eating his hamburger, is still a better... He's the one who worries about his uh, his new family. Mm. Um, I prefer him to this guy. There's that bit where he goes into the hot topic, or the off-brand hot topic, and that girl goes, hey, we got Dracula dildos here. And he... Gets mouthed off by not literally. He, <laughs> that would have been interesting. <laughs> he gets some lip from the, the the goth boy behind the counter. Is like, here, you got a problem? Like, no little skinny goths running off-brand hot topping are going to be that hostile. Like, as in my experience, goths by and large are quite. Nice, you know. If they, even if they're in a hot topic, they're not going to be like, "Yeah, what do you want, you great big muscular, angry-looking, tough-looking bodybuilder man who could probably kick my ass?" Even you if you're not place? a vampire. <laughs> and yeah. then, like, right, it just shows how shit a director and writer um, goyer is. He depowers his Dracula. I'm not going to talk about it anywhere beyond this because it's just shit. But a well-written Dracula takes the lady in one arm, bends her over, and she has to go with it because he's just emanating pheromones, just exuding a dark, assertive sex appeal. You know, Dracula is not going to be your sensitive man that people should aspire to be if they're healthy. He's a charismatic, persuasive villain. So he bends her over, he bites her neck, she arches her back, and then with his spare hand, he sort of reaches out past the camera, and you hear this crunch sound and a thump. Then you cut back to the wide shot, he drains the lady dry, and the little mouthy goth kid kind of splats onto the counter with half a head. Grizzly as hell, predatory as hell, but totally in control. Right away, this is not a Dracula you want to fuck with. Though it might be a Dracula you want to fuck and that's your Dracula. Instead, he's like, I'm going to throw you through a window. Psh! And then he, like, shoves her into a chair by force like a rapist and then, like, bites her while she goes, No! Ah! In that one movement, you take away all the strength and power of a Dracula.
1: You have nothing!
0: Co-written by David Goyer. Somebody's
1: asking, i away. Yeah, somebody's back and today. was lovely I my stay. Maybe i
0: Yes, yes, best thing about Blade Trinity, new metal soundtrack. It didn't, actually, but it did have a shit soundtrack. Uh, Well, we will be back next week with what Del Toro went on to after this, which is Hellboy 1. Yay! And it is an (laughs) epic-length show, and it is an excellent film, and you guys should see it, everyone at home. Uh, That is your homework, track down Hellboy 1. Try to get it on Blu ray if you can, because I, I don't recommend getting old films on DVD unless the Blu ray is ridiculously expensive. If you've never seen it, it's on Netflix frequently, so maybe check it out there. Mm. Okay. Does,
6: it, does it have a criterion edition?
0: No. A, no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't, uh. unfortunately. Or
6: I would have had
2: it and I would have mentioned it during <laughs> the podcast. <laughs> oh, <no.
0: laughs> right, so uh, where can we find your work, folks? Uh, Caro and Debbie first. Uh, You can find
4: us at
0: sequentially-yours.com,
4: where we do deep dives into comic books and comic book-related media. Uh, The two of us are on all of our uh, movie ones, and then I do specific ones, uh, specific videos looking at comic books themselves. Uh, Right now I'm working on reading all the Fantastic Four from number one to number 700-whatever we're at. (laughs) Uh, so, wish me luck, <laughs> <laughs> and you can find me on Twitter at Moon Panther Twenty Two,
5: and you can find me on Twitter at Best uh, Debbie Morse or Best at Eighty Three Hundred. I'm I'm quite active on Twitter, so that's usually the best way to get a hold of me if you wanna if you wanna
2: chat.
0: And
5: Lauren.
2: Oh, well, if you like the work that I do, you can move to Pittsburgh, PA, and enroll at the University of Pittsburgh, where I'll take uh, (laughs) – wait, I mean – no, I I don't do a whole lot online anymore, but I guess really the only thing to plug would be listen to the rest of the Guillermo uh, Guillermo del Toro film podcasts that are going to be coming out on this feed because – Alex was nice enough to invite me on pretty much all of them. And I feel like it's some of the best work that I've gotten to do for the
0: podcast. Not even pretty much, but it's been all of them. The only ones we never did were uh, uh, Kronos and Mimic. And that's just we couldn't muster the passion to talk about them. And it it felt like a disservice to the director to do them in a half-assed way.
2: Mm. Yeah. And we would have basically just talked about ways to make the films better instead of talking about what the films were. Yeah.
6: Um, but yeah, I yeah. would concur that these uh, podcasts have been some some of our best work as oh, yeah. well. And Lauren, your presence has definitely contributed massively to that. Thank, so thank you. you so much. Yeah.
2: yeah, well, thank you for having me. And and you know, you can listen back into the feed for both the Hellblade and the um, <clears throat> Sucker Punch,
0: uh, sucker punch.
6: <laughs> 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 which got are some of every-
0: our best. I might add, they are some of the most like people listen to them and go, you know, this really helped me, or it had a huge impact. So mm. yeah, yeah, Lauren's a, a an, an important guest. Thank you, Lauren. Thank
3: um,
0: you. Okay, so uh, what we're going to end on? Oh, I know. I against I by Moz Def Yay. from Blade yeah. Two. Oh, do
6: you know? And I never said this. It it's totally stupid, but the fact that it's Blade I I and not Blade Two did make me think when they played that song. Is that it's the two eyes in Blade Two having a fight? <laughs>
4: <laughs> <laughs> right. Only well, thing that movie they didn't. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Okay, so uh, we will see you again next week with Hellboy. Uh, I've been Alex Shaw. I've
6: been Sharon Shaw.
0: And school's out.